Good morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. The title of the sermon is Overcoming Anxiety. Our Lord has a lot to say about it here. And once you're at Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 25, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Our Lord Jesus says this, starting in verse 25. He says, Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet, I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after all or seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just uh, thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you, Jesus, for giving us this teaching. God, I pray that you would give us all eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what is in your word. I pray, Lord, that uh, you wouldn't let me mess it up, but it would just be your word going to your people so that we would all be edified, Lord, that you would teach us and rebuke us with this word, that you would correct us and train us in righteousness with your word, Lord, that, this, that we would become uh, co complete and equipped for every good work in you. So be with us on this day. Lord, may those who don't know you hear your gospel and be saved on this day. And in everything, may you get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all of this. Amen. Please have a seat. According to a 2015 article in the New York Times, nearly one in five Americans has an anxiety disorder. Anxiety is probably one of the most frequent reasons people have come to me for counseling. It seems that we live in a very anxious culture. People tend to be worried about a lot of different things. No doubt, some of you here this morning and some people listening online are probably anxious over something. And some people are anxious over everything. Obviously, there's going to be some people who have it worse than others to such a point where they might even become terrified recluses. Now, one thing that was brought to my attention by Heath Lambert, who was the former president of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, is he says that the Bible is all about our fears and anxieties, or it's partially all about that. And one evidence of that is the most repeated command in the Bible. Does anybody know what command is repeated more than any other command in the Bible? Do not fear, or King James, fear not. But I'm going to go with do not fear. Sounds stronger. Anyhow, so... That shows us then, if that's the most repeated command in the Bible, that shows us that God is concerned with whether or not we are afraid. 
It shows us then that the Bible is going to overflow with helpful teachings on fear and anxiety. Our text this morning is one of those many helpful teachings. And the bottom line is this, if God commands us not to fear more than any other command in the Bible, then it means we are doing something wrong when we live in fear and worry. There's no way of escaping that conclusion. Now, you might be saying, it sounds like he's saying that anxiety is a sin. Yes, in many cases, probably even in most cases, it actually is. And that's hard for us to hear because we have been psychologized by our culture into thinking that people are victims of anxiety. But listen, God's word tells us differently. It tells us that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that we cannot control. And because of that, we worry. That's why we worry, because we cannot control the world. We get anxious. At the end of the day, we get anxious because we wish we were in control. We wish that we could control every circumstance in our life to prevent anything we don't want coming our way. In other words, we wish we were God. That's what it comes down to. But because we're not God, we then worry. So yes, worry at its root and anxiety, same thing, are most often, again, not always, but most often the result of sinful, idolatrous thinking that mourns over the fact that we are not God. And at the exact same time, it's us refusing to trust he who is God. So Jesus seeks to set that wrong attitude right in our text this morning. So the main point of the text is this, really simple, Christians must not worry. That's what Jesus is telling us. Point of the text is Christians must not worry. Now, we might ask, well, why not? There's a lot of things to be worried about in this world. In our text, Jesus is going to command us three different times not to worry. So that's the why not. Jesus said so. How many times? Three times in one text. That should be enough for any Christian. But in addition to him giving three commands, he's also going to give us three reasons why we shouldn't be anxious. And then in addition to that, he's gonna give us three reasons anxiety is foolish. So three commands to not worry, three reasons to not worry, three reasons why it's foolish if we do. Ultimately, when we understand everything that our Lord says in this text, I think we're gonna understand how to overcome anxiety. So we could get into it. We are in the Sermon on the Mount and As I've just noted, Jesus is moving to a very common problem for people, anxiety. Now, there's a parallel passage in Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34, different contexts, different settings. Um, He's bringing this up for different reasons, but these passages are very much like each other. Since we're in Matthew 6, we're going to focus on this context. Jesus is teaching against greed. Remember what we saw last time in verses 19 through 24. You have the, some people have the evil eye is what he calls it. The bad eye or the evil eye is the greedy person. He's making it clear and he made it clear in that passage that you can't live for money. You cannot serve it as your master. If you are greedy and if you are putting your trust in money, then you're inviting anxiety into your life. You're giving to money what you should be giving to God, which is our trust, our dependence, our love, and our worship. If you think money provides your security, you're treating it like it's God, okay? So Jesus was reminding us we could lose our money anytime. We could lose our health anytime. We could lose the people who are most valuable to us anytime. We could lose our own lives anytime. Anxiety, this is why he's moving from that to now anxiety. Anxiety stems from the fact that we can lose these things and we are not in control. We are not in control. 
Now, what, this is, what, what we see when we look at people is there's usually two types of responses, but I'd say three, but let me focus on the main two. Two kinds of responses to the fact that we're not in control. One response is to blind ourselves to the fact that we're not in control, and therefore we live our lives as if we are in control. Now, people who do that don't suffer from a lot of anxiety because they've closed their eyes and their ears to the real world. They've tricked themselves. They fail to realize how small and insignificant they are in the grand scheme of things. They fail to realize how many trillions of things happen outside of their control. So they don't worry because they blind themselves to it. And they don't worry until everything's taken from them in an instant. Then they have all eternity to worry and mourn. That's one response to the fact we're not in control. The second response to the fact that we're not in control is to freak out. It's the realization like, oh no, I'm small and insignificant. And there's billions of things outside of my control. That's a terrifying thought. So that causes a person to then become scared of his own shadow. The fear can be so paralyzing that some people don't know how to navigate life because they're so distracted by their fear and anxiety. And then the, there's a third response, as I was mentioning, to our lack of control. And that's just to accept that we have no control and you just go with the flow. But that could then lead to laziness and irresponsibility since you might have the attitude, well, I'm not in control. What's the point of trying? Why bother? That's not the right answer either. All three of these responses are unbiblical. They are worldly. In fact, Jesus will make that clear as we go along in the text. The right response is what he teaches in all these verses. The right response is to first acknowledge you're not in control, but then to totally acknowledge God who is in control. The right response is to trust God. It's to have faith. It's to work and live your life responsibly, knowing that in the end, God is managing everything that takes place, and he's doing so according to perfect wisdom. It might not feel like that to you, but it's to trust him that he knows what he's doing. Keeping that in mind then reminds us that when bad things happen and bad circumstances come our way, it too is part of the plan. We just need to trust God. We need to mean it when we sing, he gives and takes away. But still my heart will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. We sing it, but do we mean it? Do we believe it? The answer to anxiety is to mean it and believe it, or believe it and mean it. So let's look at what Jesus our Lord has to say. In the first half of verse 25, he starts with his first of three commands to not be anxious. He says this, if you look at it, he says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Now, I want you to notice that the first word is therefore. And I know it gets corny, but it makes you remember. Whenever you see the word therefore, ask, what's the therefore, therefore? In other words, therefore always requires you to look back at what was just said. Because therefore means like, in light of what was just said, now do this, okay? So we have to look back at what was just said. What was just said? Jesus told us, don't live your life storing up treasures in this world because they won't last. You will eventually lose every single possession in this life. So don't live for them. Instead, store up treasures in the world to come. The world where you lose none of your possessions. The world where you cannot die. The world where there is no curse, no sin. The world where you will be able to gaze upon the glory of God. Live in a way that stores up treasure for that world. Because if you live that way, you won't be greedy. You'll be generous. Remember, Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. You'll love one and hate the other. If you love God and you love the world to come, then living for this world is incompatible with that. Where your heart is, what did Jesus say? 
There too is your treasure. And remember what I said when we were going through verses 19 through 24. Ultimately, you love what you treasure, you live for what you love, and you serve the one for whom you live. That's ultimately what it comes down to. If you live for God, completely surrendering to him in faith, then there's a lot less that's going to make you sinfully anxious. But if you reject what Jesus said in verses 19 through 24, then yes, you're going to be anxious. You're living for this world. This is a world where Jesus said, uh, thieves steal, moths eat, and rust destroys. This is a world where we die. If the things of this world are your treasure, then the billions of threats to those treasures, the billions of things that could rob you of them, they will keep you up at night if this is what you're treasuring. If your life in this world is what you live for, rather than you taking up your cross and dying to yourself like Jesus said, then the billions of threats to your life every day, the ones you're both aware of and unaware of, they will make you a nervous wreck. And that is why Jesus is talking about anxiety here. It perfectly comes off of what he just taught us about God versus money. That's why he says, therefore. Now, sadly, anxiety over the things of this life, it causes some people to be greedy. They think if they could simply just get more and more of what they want, then they'll be so secure that they never have to worry. Well, listen, the world doesn't work that way. Let's take ourselves, let's take America, let's take our society as a prime example. We live in the richest country in the world, and yet we have a higher percentage of worried people than anywhere else in the world. I was perusing the website of ADAA, which is the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, where they got all the stats on anxiety, and when you combine all the different categories of anxiety, they are tracking nearly 60 million Americans struggling with anxiety. That's nearly 20% of all Americans. I'm not just talking about people being stressed out because everybody gets stressed out. I'm talking about what they classify as anxiety, which is more severe. So we are the richest people who have ever lived, and yet we are the most anxious people who have ever lived. So getting more of what we want does not solve the problem as much as people think it will. It just won't. Regardless, though, of whatever gets people to worry, Jesus is commanding us here, and it is a command. He's telling us not to worry or not to be anxious. In Greek, worry and anxious, same word. Now, remember, I told you a few minutes ago that he commands us not to, he teaches us not to worry by commanding us not to worry three times in one passage. Let's look again at verse 25, the first part of it, so we could see the first command. He says, therefore, I tell you, Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Now, I want you to notice how comprehensive the command is. It's not only about money. It's about your life. Don't worry about your life. It's also about what you put in your gut. It's about what you put on your body. Now, in the Greek, the word life here is actually suke, which is the word for soul. It's the word for soul. Don't worry about your soul. And then he goes on to talk about eating and drinking. And then he says, don't worry about your body, what you're going to wear. Now, Jesus brings up body and soul here, not to contrast our material and immaterial parts of us. No, this is a merism. A few weeks ago, Pastor Josh was telling you about merisms. It's a figure of speech where you mention two opposite ends of something to let people know that you're talking about everything in between. So, for example, I was working night and day, just means I work the whole day. Or I will search far and wide, 
means I'm going to look everywhere. Or uh, I hurt from head to toe. I'm hurting everywhere. Or God created the heavens and the earth. I think you're getting the point. The whole universe. Okay, so when, so when Jesus says not to worry about our body and our soul, he's telling you not to worry about any aspect of your life, your body and your soul and everything in between. That's why our translation and most translations now render it as don't worry about your life because that's really what he's getting at. Every aspect of your life, don't worry. This was the clearest way Jesus could have said this. So let me just state the bottom line up front. Jesus is telling you not to be anxious. Anxious about what? About anything. It's all covered in that merism. He then gives examples that really do speak to most of what we deal with in life. Food, drink, and clothing. Those are our most fundamental and essential needs. He's saying, don't be anxious about any of it. Now, right away, people are going to object. I'm sure people in his audience might have objected. They're going to be thinking, what are you talking about? How could you tell me not to worry about what I'm going to eat, drink, and wear? I need food, I need drink, and I need clothes. Well, anticipating that, Jesus continues. In the rest of verse 25, he answers this hypothetical objection with a question. He says this at the end of verse 25. He says, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words, if you are worried about food and clothes, then you think that's what life is all about. But that's not what life is all about. We know it. Most people would, would agree with Jesus in principle. They'd say, well, yeah, life's deeper than just food and, and clothes. Life is, is about loving others and, and fulfilling one's dreams. You know, people always want to sound deep. But watch what happens when a person who doesn't walk with Jesus and doesn't trust Jesus, watch what happens when they lose their job. Watch what, watch what happens when they lose control of the circumstances of their life. Are they then focused on loving others and fulfilling their dreams? No, it quickly becomes a dog-eat-dog game of survival. Any good eye they had now becomes the, the greedy, evil eye. And the reason this happens is because people have a false view of reality. They think reality is about survival. But is it? Is it about survival? You see, right here, Jesus is giving the first reason why anxiety is foolish. The reason is because life is more, so much more, than what one eats and wears. If you are worried about this, then you are seeing life as less than what it is. You are reducing it down to survival. You're reducing life's dignity down to possessions. And it's so much more than that. And that's why it's foolish. Now, some will probably be thinking, okay, Jesus, prove it. Prove that life is more than striving to acquire food and clothing. He proves it with two examples from nature. He points out two life forms that are a lot dumber than we are. In fact, they are too dumb to plan for the future. And yet, they seem to do just fine. So let's look at these examples. With the first example, he points to a particular creature. Look at the first part of verse 26. He says, consider the birds of the sky. Now, before I continue on, I want to note that this too is a command. He's commanding you to stop and look around the world that God made and pay close attention to it. We don't do this anywhere near enough, and we should. So he's saying, stop, consider creation, see what you can learn from it, because you can learn a lot from it. Unlike the animals, we have the ability to look intently at the world and understand it. So make use of that. He says, look at the birds. Well, what about them? He continues. He says, they don't sow 
or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Look, birds don't have 401ks. Birds don't plant seeds. They don't gather harvests. They don't invent technology in order to produce food. They don't conduct or they don't construct irrigation systems to bring water to themselves and crops. No, they just fly around to grab some twigs to build a nest, and then they find worms and seed as they go along on a day-to-day basis. And they seem to do just fine. In fact, there are more birds than people. For every human, scientists estimate there are between 40 to 60 birds. So they're not doing too bad. Now, Jesus' point is simple. If life was all about what we eat and wear, then why is there a creature with nowhere near our intellectual capabilities and our innovating abilities, why is that creature able to thrive and survive? They survive just fine without worrying about these things. They don't even know they should be worrying about these things. And so that then proves life is not all about what we eat and wear because there's 400 billion birds in the world that never think about those things and yet they live. They live. Now, I don't want us to get this wrong. He's not saying that we should all become lazy bums and quit our jobs, okay? Birds still have to look for food and they still build their nests. Jesus is simply saying that they are taken care of. Why? Why are seemingly dumb creatures able to survive and thrive? Jesus says, quote, your heavenly father feeds them, end quote. Without God, of course they would die off. They don't plan, they don't build, they don't invent, they don't till the earth. Yet they survive because God cares for them. And I want you to notice, Jesus emphasizes that it is your heavenly father. He doesn't say God cares for them or the father cares for them. He says your heavenly father feeds them. Remember, if you are a true Christian, you have been adopted into God's household. You are now part of God's family. Through Jesus, all your sins are forgiven. Through Jesus, you are granted a record of perfect righteousness, his record. Through Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside of you. Through Jesus, you are united to the Father because Jesus is united to the Father as the second person of the Trinity, but you're united to Jesus as the God-man, our Messiah. So you're united to Jesus. He unites you to the Father. We all become adopted sons of the Father. Now, here's my point. None of that can be said of any bird. Birds aren't flying around, God's my Father. No, they're not made in His image. Okay, yet your Father feeds them. Look, when my dog was alive, and I love my dog, little Mephibosheth, when he was alive, I made sure he was fed. But I did not go to work every day to make sure my dog was fed. I went to work every day to make sure my wife and kids were fed. When it came to my kids, that is why I have to work, so that they don't starve. Now, they could look at the fact that the dog is fed, and if they're doing what Jesus is telling us to do here, they'd be like, ah, if our dad is willing to feed our dog, of course he's going to work hard to feed us. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's the same logic. Now, at the end of verse 26, he shows us Jesus's point. He shows us what I just said. He says with the question, aren't you worth more than they? Aren't you worth more than they? He's using a very common Jewish argument. Today, we call it a lesser to greater argument. They called it a call va homer, which just means light and heavy. It's a simple argument based on immutable logic. If something is true for a lesser or lighter case, then how much more should we expect it to be true for a greater or heavier case? 
If birds that cannot do what we can do, yet if they survive and thrive because God takes care of them, then how much more so are we in a better position to be taken care of since we are God's children? That's what Jesus is getting at here. That is what he is getting at. Now, contrary to the insane worldview of the progressive environmentalist, Jesus says we are worth more than birds. Okay, we are worth more than the animal kingdom. You know, the fallen world seems to denigrate man and see us as less than we are. Listen, we are not just an equal part of this world sharing it with with every other creature. Go back to the Bible. Go back to Genesis. Go back to Torah. We were created to have dominion over this world. We are made in the image of God. That is why we can do the things we could do. Therefore, in God's estimation, we are worth way more than birds. And if he takes care of them, then why in the world would we ever doubt that he'll take care of us? That is our Lord's point. Jesus then adds to that the second reason why it is foolish to worry or be anxious. In verse 27, he says this. He asks, he says, can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? The answer is no. Worrying is actually unproductive. Does anxiety produce anything good in you? Anytime you've ever been worried, has the worry itself led to a good result? I don't think so. Does it make the problem go away? Well, I'm worried about Hamas. Oh, they disappeared. No, it doesn't work. Worrying doesn't make the problem go away. Okay, in fact, worrying does not help you. It actually hurts you. That's why people who are overly anxious tend to have health problems. Now, scientists still debate the how and why, the relationship, like why do overly anxious people have health problems and who knows if they'll ever figure it out. But here's what we know for sure. The fact is anxiety hurts both the body and the mind. It does the exact opposite of what people hope it will do. My guess is people think that by worrying, it'll cause them to focus on their problem and then they'll solve it. But the opposite happens. The problem starts to seem large to them, so large that the anxiety increases. And then it rolls over each day and gets bigger and bigger. And then the physical effects of it worsen to the point of panic. So rather than fixing the problem, it actually only makes it worse. Rather than adding time to your life, it actually starts to subtract time from your life. And it ruins the quality of your life because you're too worried to enjoy the gifts that God has given you. That's what anxiety does. And often people don't realize this until it's too late and then you've lost the very thing you were anxious to save. So worrying does not fix your problem. It certainly doesn't make you live longer. It's useless. It's unproductive. So why keep at it? Now, ultimately, what is the Lord's point here? He's saying worrying is foolish because it doesn't change your situation. Worrying about something doesn't doesn't change your situation at all. It doesn't remove your circumstance. But you know who can change your situation? God. The the very God that takes care of the birds is also the only one that could do anything about your situation. God is all-powerful. He is sovereign. You can't add time to your life. He added time to Hezekiah's life. It's up to him what he's going to do. You also can't ultimately be in control of of whether you have food or clothing. Yes, you could work and, and make money in this little sliver in front of you, but you know there's a massive world economy and stuff happening way outside of your control that even brings the clothes here. What if that all falls apart? The little sliver you're working on in front of you isn't going to do you any good. So the point is we're not in control ultimately of being able to gather the things we need. 
Yes, we are to be responsible and work for these things, but don't forget that moths and rust and thieves can take them from you. Remember the fire victims in Maui last year? There were likely thousands of people who never questioned a day in their life whether or not they'd have food or clothing, and then after those fires, they only could get those things by people sending in donations. You just don't know what's coming. We can plant seeds, but rain might not come. We can invest in a 401k, but the stock market can crash. We might invest our whole lives in kids' sports, hoping that one day they'll get a Division I scholarship to college, uh, and then their knee gets busted their senior year, and their scholarship gets revoked. That happened to one of my students when I was a teacher. You guys might be thinking, man, he's depressing us with all this. Listen, we can't control these things is my point. And the sooner we understand who can control that, that's how we're going to work through anxiety. Look, the same way we can't control how long we live, we ultimately can't control food, clothing, our relationships, or anything else because we cannot control the circumstances, the gazillions of them, of the world around us. And worrying does not all of a sudden magically make you get control of what you will never have control of. Jesus is calling us to trust the one who does control the circumstances. And he calls you to remember that the birds are taken care of. That's how you know you could trust God. But he doesn't stop there. He moves to a second example in verse 28. Here he moves to the subject of clothes. Look at the first part of verse 28. He says, and why do you worry about clothes? We all know people worry about what they're going to wear. And again, Jesus is going to point us to something in the world. He's going to command us a second time to look at nature. Look at the rest of verse 28. He says, observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. In other words, they don't do anything that we have to do to make clothes. And yet they look spiffier than we do even when we wear our fanciest outfits. In verse 29, Jesus puts it like this. He says, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. Now think about that. Solomon was the most glorious king of Israel. When you read the Old Testament accounts of his palace, his clothes, his servants, and everything, it's quite breathtaking. And I choose that word literally because when the queen of Sheba came to see it all for herself, 1 Kings chapter 10 verse 5 says it all took her breath away. Took her breath away. Well, our Lord is telling us that a simple wildflower in Galilee with its brilliant colors and pleasant smells are adorned far greater than Solomon. And there's a particular season where all those wildflowers do grow, and I've seen pictures of them. They're absolutely gorgeous. And Jesus is saying, look at them. They are more gloriously clothed than Solomon. And yet these flowers, they don't spin thread. They don't weave garments. They just grow. And they look beautiful, and they smell good. They don't have B.O. or anything like that. And Jesus' point here is the same as it was with the birds, We see this in verse 30. Jesus says, If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? What a strong word from him. Who control or who clothes the grass? God. Who feeds the birds? God. What's worth more, humans or grass? Humans. The flowers are here just one day and then they're burned the next. Yet human beings are eternal. We will exist, not eternal in the same way as God, but meaning we're gonna, once you exist, once you come into existence in your mother's womb, you are going to exist forever, somewhere, right? So in that sense, we are eternal beings. 
And so Jesus is making another call va homer or lesser to greater argument. If God so perfectly takes care of lesser things like flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, then shouldn't we expect him to also take care of greater things like humans, humans that will endure forever? Of course. Of course we could trust he'll take care of us. We could look around at nature and we can see God's perfect provision. We could look at ourselves and realize that we are more valuable than any of those things in nature. We could reason with the minds that God has given us that if he cares for those things, we could trust that he will care for us. But alas, many of us still worry. We look around, we see this, but we still worry. Many of us are still anxious. Why? Jesus gets straight to the heart of it and answers it right here. And a lot of people hate this answer, but what, you're gonna argue with the God man? Here's what he says in verse 30 at the end of it. Why are people anxious? After making the lesser to greater argument, he calls the one who worries, you of little faith. That's where it comes from. You of little faith. I'm not gonna argue with the Lord. Well, my psychologist tells me it's more complicated than that. I'm sorry. Jesus says, you of little faith. Fear is the absence of faith. Worrying is the absence of faith. According to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Jesus is making it clear that the reason people worry is because people don't have faith. They are of little faith. So they either do not trust that God is in control or just as bad or maybe even worse. They do believe God's in control, but they act like he doesn't care. And so they don't trust him to take care of them. Either way, that's, that's faithless. That is the kind of thinking that exists behind worrying. And you know what? Jesus is about to take it to another level. If people think that's hard, if Christians think that's hard, he's about to take it to another level in, in, in the next part of this. But for now, it suffices to say that, that Jesus in his first command for us not to be anxious, he's given us two reasons why it's foolish to, to worry. First, life is more than the things you worry about. Second, it doesn't change. Worrying doesn't change anything for the better. It only makes it worse. Jesus then told you, look at creation itself. Observe what God does for lesser things. And, and if we could see he's trustworthy with the little things, then we need to trust him with our own lives too. Anxiety is our disobedience to do that very thing. Anxiety and fear is our declaration that in that moment, we don't trust God. Well, again, as bad as that is, our Lord's gonna make it even clearer with his second command not to be anxious. He's gonna show you who we're really thinking like when we are worrisome. So look at verse 31. Here we see the command again. He says, so don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? Okay, he's just repeated the first command again a second time. So the second command is the same as the first command. Don't worry about these things. Now, before going any further, I think it goes without saying that if the Lord of the universe gives us a command and we disobey it, then we're doing something wrong, right? Twice he's given us this command. Well, not only is it a sin to disobey him on this, but as I've said, it's, it's foolish. He's shown us two, two reasons why it's foolish. Now he's gonna give us the third reason. Being foolish is anxious, and man, this answer is kind of startling. Look at the first part of verse 32. He says, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Translation, when you are anxious about the things of life, you are thinking like an unbeliever. Remember, back when Jesus said this, this was before the cross. So the Gentiles, the nations, the goyim, they did not know God. Only Israel knew God. The Gentiles knew their fake gods. So they didn't know the real God. 
Only one group of people knew God. And so when he says, you're thinking like the Gentiles, before the cross, he's saying you're thinking like those who don't know God. Unbelievers. So the third, that is the third reason. Re, uh, worrying is foolish. You're thinking like someone that does not know God. Listen, when you're, when you're all bent out of shape and you live in terror, as if the sky is falling, when you have no confidence that it's going to be okay, when Scripture ceases to comfort you because you now disbelieve what it promises, then you're living and thinking like an atheist. I want you to think about it. In the atheist universe, it's all one big random accident, according to them. There's no design behind it because there's no designer. There's no providence because no intelligent being is guiding the universe or history. Everything to them comes down to random chance. Our existence is nothing more than a happen chance stroke of luck. There's no meaning to life. There's no purpose to life. No one's in control. We're not in control. Nothing's in control. Christian, when you are so worried that you think everything is out of control, you're agreeing with them. You're agreeing with the atheists. They also think nothing's under control. When you're so worried that things aren't going to be okay, you're agreeing with them. They also think it's not going to be okay. Eventually, the sun's going to go supernova, and this is all going to be gone. Okay? They, they don't think there's any God guiding this. There's no plan for our lives. It's just a fluke. Well, worrying agrees that it's just a fluke. When you're so anxious that someone could quote Romans 8.28 to you, which says that God promises to work all things for your good, and you say, stop it. That does not help me right now. I don't see how this could be for my good. Then you're agreeing with the atheist. Because even though you would never say this out loud, underneath those words of doubt are these words. This is not the word of God. It's just a book of wishful thinking. Now, of course, on the surface, you'd say, no, this is the inspired, infallible, and errant word of God. But if its promises cannot comfort you when you're worried, then you're saying it's wishful thinking. And so what this gets to is underneath the surface, there are always idols that are pushing our bad thinking and, and our bad feelings. You see, not to trust God is not just to be like the atheists. It's also to be like the pagans who had no idea whether their gods would bless them or curse them. Pagan gods are not good. They're capricious. When things don't go, and, and so when things don't go your way, and you're like, you know, God doesn't care, or God's being unfair to me, then you're agreeing with the pagans. You're saying the one true God's capricious. For what? All because you didn't get what you want? Because you don't want to have to endure what you're going through for, for a time, for a season? That's idolatry of self. And that idolatry of self is what lies behind the vast majority of cases of anxiety. Jesus rebukes this combination of atheistic and pagan thought. He reminds us of what we should already know about God. Remember, he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to believers. He's talking to people who he saved. He reminds us that God is good. Just like he takes care of birds and flowers, he will take care of us. He does take care of us. So in the second part of verse 32, concerning food and clothing, Jesus says this. He says, your heavenly father knows that you need them. Do you really think the all-knowing and all-powerful God forgot that he made you a creature that has to eat and be clothed, at least clothed after the fall? You think he forgot that? No, he knows. Do you think he's going to be better to birds and grass than to you? No, the father knows you need these things. So in any tough circumstance, even the ones that have nothing to do with food or clothes, God knows what you need. 
In fact, God allowed the circumstance for a reason. He is using it to make you more like Jesus. So you simply need to trust him and let him take care of you. Listen, one reason we are worried is because we are finite creatures in a messed up world. Things are bigger than us, and that makes sense that you would be worried. But what, we're, what it's meant to do is make us stop freaking out and just trust that God is with us. I mean, come on, just read the Psalms. They start out worried, and by the end of the Psalm, they're not worried anymore because they remind themselves of who's in control. Where they were at the beginning of the psalm is not where they are at the end of the psalm because I believe they're walking through the same thought process that Jesus is giving us here. The Lord knows what we need. We simply just have to trust him and trust that he will take care of us. So worrying is not the solution. Doesn't help. Ordering your life around this world even more, that's not the solution. So the real question is, how do you overcome anxiety then? Well, what we know from the rest of the Bible is like any kind of biblical change, you have to put off the sin and put on the righteous opposite, and then you have to renew your mind with Scripture. So you have to put off the sin of distrusting God, and you have to replace it with trusting God. Again, countless Psalms walk us through that very process. They put off the distrust, they put on the trust in God. And then we need to renew our mind with Scripture so that we will see the world the way God wants you to see it then you're going to be far more prepared for tough circumstances. See, that's the chief difference between the Christian who is at peace during the storms of life and the Christian who falls apart. The one who falls apart a lot of times is bewildered by the one who's at peace. But the one who's at peace is at peace because he or she has faith. That's really what it comes down to. The one who falls apart does not. After all, did not Jesus say to the one who worries, you of little faith? Again, we can't argue with him. So the question then is, what does faith like this look like? The faith that trusts. What what does trusting look like? It's displayed through our actions, not just our thoughts. Rather than chase after everything we're worried about in this life, Jesus is going to tell you to do something quite the opposite in verse 33. He gives another command, and this command is the cure to anxiety. So let's look closely at verse 33. You want the cure, cure? Here it is. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. That seems counterintuitive to what the world believes, but this is what the Lord is saying. The father already knows you need these things. Don't worry about them. He'll give you what you need when you need it. Instead, Jesus is saying, you want to overcome this? Get busy about God's business. Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Now, what exactly does this mean? Well, first notice the word first. First, seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. This is not a chronological first, but it's a logical first. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus Jesus isn't telling you that as long as you get up in the morning and the first thing you do is read the Bible and pray, that you've now first sought the kingdom. That would be chronological, and that's not what he means. Otherwise, as long as you did some Bible-y type of things in the morning, you could then worry the rest of the day and say, but I first sought the kingdom. That's not what he's getting at, okay? This is a logical first. That means to seek the kingdom above all else. It's a matter of priority. To seek the kingdom of God first means you seek it first and foremost in your life. Your life is oriented around the kingdom. Your thoughts are first focused on God and his righteousness, not just when you wake up, but all the time. What Jesus is telling you is rather than worry about the things that you cannot control and change, focus your thinking and your doing on the things of God. Let that be what drives you every day. 
What about your life? What about food and drink? What about clothes? What about everything you're afraid to lose? Let God take care of it. He will take care of it. He takes care of the birds. He takes care of the flowers. He's gonna take care of you. The real question is, do you believe it? And if you believe it, then you're not gonna be worrying about those things all day. If you worry about those things, it's because you don't believe it. So keep reading it and praying about it till you believe it. Because again, it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of thinking. Okay, we don't wanna think like the atheist and the pagan. We don't wanna assume that if my hand is not on the wheel of the universe, then no one's hand is on it. No, that's crazy talk. A hand far more capable than yours or mine runs the universe, okay? It runs the universe, and he has promised you that you are worth more than birds and flowers. He has told you to look at them constantly to remind yourself that he takes care of them. He tells you that so you would trust him that he will take care of you. He's done this to free your heart and your mind up from all these burdens that way you could focus them on what you were created to do in the first place, and that is serve God, your whole life being an act of worship to him. That is what Jesus is telling you. Now, we know we're supposed to seek first the kingdom. It's our number one priority. But again, what does that mean? Okay, Saying all that, it's helpful, but if, if it's not concretely explained, then we don't really know what to do. So let me just briefly say what the kingdom is again. I've been talking about this a lot, but if we're seeking the kingdom above all else, we gotta understand what it is. It refers to the reign and rule of God over everything, but it also refers to a time when his rule on earth will be exactly like it is in heaven. When the kingdom arrives on earth in its fullest, it will be a new earth with a new heaven. We will live in a new Jerusalem where heaven and earth become one domain. This will be after we are resurrected and have bodies that cannot sin or die. It'll be a time where every single nation will have people who were saved and forevermore they will worship God together. We will all worship him together. It will be a place where we actually see God with our own eyes and we don't just explode and die from it. You know, we'll be able to behold his glory. We will be talking to angels as casually as we talk to each other right now. I was just thinking about this this morning. Like a billion years from now, like your best friend might be an angel that you've now been hanging out with for almost a billion years. Harry the angel, who knows? You know, I mean, it's just gonna be a very, very different, different world that we're gonna live in. There will be no death. There will be no curse. Now that part of the kingdom is still coming. But here's what we need to understand. When Jesus came and died on the cross and was buried and rose on the third day, he inaugurated this final kingdom of God that we're waiting for. He began it. He poured out the Holy Spirit upon us 50 days after Passover, after his death. And in the process, ever since he's, he birthed his church and poured the Holy Spirit upon us, he is now in the process right now of his inaugurated kingdom of saving people from every nation. He has given us the job of going to the lost and telling them about salvation. That is why we're here. We are his recruiters. We are recruiting all the citizens of God's eternal kingdom. We are calling them into his kingdom. We're calling them to, to immigrate to God's kingdom. So what that means is seeking first the kingdom in part means we gotta get out of our pathetic comfort zone and we gotta tell the lost about their doom if they don't repent. We must love people enough to enter their life like Jesus entered ours. And we need to show them the way to eternal life like he showed us. 
We must do this for our unsaved family, friends, and neighbors. We must do this for our coworkers. We need to do this for everyone that the Lord puts in our lives. We should also care about strangers. They need to know the Lord too. We need to work diligently to get the good news of the kingdom to both those near and those far off. That is first what it means for us to seek the kingdom right now as we are growing and building the kingdom for our Lord. It is also our job, though, to love those who are already citizens of that kingdom. And where do we do that? Where do we regularly interact with the citizens of the kingdom? In the context of the local church. This is a colony or an outpost of the kingdom. So seeking first the kingdom is also serving in the church. In the church, we use our gifts to serve each other. In the church, we grow as we are equipped to do the work of the ministry. In the church, we do the work of the ministry. We love each other. We care for each other. We weep with each other. We rejoice with each other. All these things the scripture tells us. We sacrificially die to ourselves for the sake of each other. What the scripture teaches about life in the church is nothing like the attractional model in our country where people just come on a Sunday morning and spectate. No, we are all supposed to be serving. And it's definitely not just one day a week. We're to be serving each other. Now, additionally, okay, we serve our families. Deuteronomy chapter 6 makes it clear. We have God's, his word on our hearts and our lips, according to Deuteronomy 6. We're to teach our children when we rise up and lie down. We're to talk about the ways of God when we come and go. We are to bind God's word on our hands and in between our eyes so that in all that we see, think, and do, it is always tempered by God's infallible word. And then we pass this on to our children and their children. Right? That is seeking first the kingdom, even in your own home. Loved ones, all of this, evangelism, discipling your kids, and serving the church regularly, this is all what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that is the cure to anxiety. We are citizens of his kingdom, and the values and priorities of his kingdom must be our values and priorities. Now, you might be saying, well, if I'm doing all that, can I still have a regular job and spend time with my family while I'm doing these things? <laughs> All right, Paul. <laughs> anyway, yes, yes, you can. Listen, here's the thing. Seeking first the kingdom means it's your number one priority, but it is not your only priority. You still have other priorities. And you want to know what? You are better at the second priorities if you combine them with your first priority. Okay, that, that, that is my point. What do I mean by that? Imagine how good of a worker you would be at work, if, how, how good of a worker you would be if you produce excellent work every day because you want your boss and coworkers to see the values of the kingdom of God. You want them to see what a born-again follower of Jesus works like, and you want it to be way above and beyond those who don't know Jesus. Imagine what that does for the gospel. Imagine how good of a husband or wife you would be if you actually saw your marriage through the eyes of the gospel and dropped your stupid selfishness and bitterness and said, no, our marriage is an image, a picture, a parable of the gospel, and by God, we're going to live that way. We'll have great marriages if we do that. That is seeking the kingdom first in your marriage. Imagine how great you would be with your kids if it was discipleship and fun rolled into one. I imagine just following Jesus around for three years. He's teaching them as they're doing stuff. And I'm sure they had fun too. Why not disciple our kids that way? Again, it's, it's kingdom building and it's parenting all rolled into one. Imagine how good of a friend you would be to your neighbors if everything you do for them also has their eternity in mind. 
That is seeking first the kingdom and still hitting all your other priorities. And so the bottom line is we are to focus our efforts and energy on his kingdom. But we don't neglect those other things because then we'd be bums. You, you have to have a job. Okay, you have to provide for your family. That's a command. But don't make your job your life. Okay, work as a means to pay the bills and to bless others with your generosity. Then dedicate your time to ministries at your church and involve your family in that. Seek first the kingdom. Don't have the kingdom as an afterthought. It's supposed to be the first thought. And we are, we are experts at tricking ourselves to checking off just enough to where we can say, well, I'm serving. But if it's an afterthought, it is not seeking first the kingdom. It's got to be flopped. It's got to be switched. Listen, God's going to take care of the rest. If you are so focused on the things of God, or if you're that focused on the things of God, you're not going to have time to worry about the trivial things of life. That is how we overcome anxiety. So rather than worry, get busy for God and watch what happens to your anxiety. Believe in God enough to trust him when he says he will provide all things to you. As long as you're not being a bum, you still have to be responsible. But believe him when he says he's going to provide all things to you as you focus on the kingdom. Listen, the most worried people I know are isolated from God, his people. They don't read the word. They're just by themselves a lot. And then they wonder why. He's given you, he's giving you the game plan right here. Focus on him. You will never stop worrying until you do this. So when you wake up, think about everything you have to do. Think of how in, in each of those things, how you can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness as you're doing those things. Then go and do it. And listen, if you are not involved Loving rebuke here. If you are not involved in this church beyond Sunday morning, guess what? You are not seeking first his kingdom. You're, you're not. Even then, there's some of you guys, and I say this in love, but you attend worship services only like twice a month. Now, I understand we get sick and stuff like that. I'm not talking about that. But there's some people, this, this, this is like the, the bare minimum is just showing up with God's people to, to worship him. And some people, it is not, important enough to them to do that every week. Now, again, if you're sick, stay home because you don't want to get the rest of us sick. But otherwise, come on, we could do better. We're not seeking first the kingdom if, if, we're, not, if we're not all in. Some, some of you guys, some of my friends, spend too much time on video games. Some people spend too much time on hobbies, and I've been guilty of both of those. And look, those things aren't bad until they become first rather than the kingdom. As long as they're not first and you know better, you know, okay, don't do the little thing, well, I, I prayed today, now I'm going to play video games. No, listen, you could play those things, but just make sure it's not first. Make sure it's not first. Don't put these things ahead of the kingdom, because listen, when you put these things ahead of the kingdom, everything else in your life will weaken. It will. Your marriages are going to struggle. Your, your relationships at work are going to struggle. And all these things now start to bring extra anxiety. Because you're not putting the first thing first. So, if that's you, repent. If you're uninvolved, get involved. Don't wait for somebody to ask you. You really think that, that when you're standing before Jesus, hey, why didn't you ever serve in the church? Well, nobody asked me to. Come on. That's, that's not how it works. God's not going to let you use that as an excuse. Our bulletin, our newsletter, the weekly announcements tells you everything that's going on. When somebody asks me, what do we have for our fathers to teach them to be godly men and, and, our, and our mothers? I'm like, do you listen to the announcements? Do you go on the website? 
Do you, do you uh, read the bulletin and the people who spend time to write the devos in the bulletin? All this stuff is, is there. It's out there, okay? It's out there. Most of, and I'm going to tell you, most of our ministries need more helpers. So please get involved and talk to me. Talk to any of the leaders. Send an email, harass my daughter, info at sovereignway.org. We will find something for you guys to do. It's kind of funny, when I was practicing this, this morning, my younger daughter, Hadessa, said, Dad, if you say that, you know, you're going to make people mad, and then you won't get money. And I said, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, that's her understanding of this. Uh, and and so, so the thing is, I was telling her, because she's, she's reading the prophets, she's in like Ezekiel now, and you know, prophets are hard for a kid to understand, but we make, we make her read the Bible cover to cover every year, so I, I talk with her about it, and so I reminded her, I said, well, think about what you saw in Jeremiah. You notice how he was always saying God's word to the people, but the people didn't like it? If, if I were to not say what God wants me to say, then I'm being like the false prophets, and she's like, oh, you're very wise, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> a good teaching moment this morning. Okay, I just thought, of that. I thought I should share that. It was, it was an interesting conversation. Now, last thing I'll say about seeking the kingdom real quick is that also, very importantly, start praying for the salvation of those around you who do not know Jesus. Okay, that's where it starts. Start praying for them to where you're burdened in your heart for them and it shows up in your prayers. And then start practicing maybe in your head how you'll share the gospel with them. Okay, take every baby step that's necessary until you're finally ready to share the gospel. That too is seeking first the kingdom. But that is not the same thing as sitting around daydreaming about it while actually doing nothing in preparation for it. See, like you could daydream about it. Yeah, I want my my unsaved family to be saved, but you don't do anything about it. That's different than praying about them and then in your head, practicing evangelizing and moving closer and closer to when you finally do it, okay? So seek first the kingdom. Now, Jesus's point is that there is so much kingdom work that God has left for us to do before we die that if we're doing it, we're not gonna have that much time to be worrying about all that other stuff, okay? But it's precisely because we don't do the kingdom work that we have extra time to worry. I really encourage you to go to another country, a third world one, on a short-term mission trip. They seem less worried than us. They work longer than us, but they're also way more involved in their churches than you see in America. And there's a connection. I'm telling you there's a connection. We worry because we're probably not seeking first the kingdom and what we're doing. We also worry because we don't trust God's gonna provide for us. Maybe that's one reason we're, we're not spending as much time seeking first the kingdom. So what we need to do is reverse this. Trust that God will provide. Get busy for him while fully trusting he'll take care of the rest. And I'll tell you, the anxiety will pick up wings and fly away. Okay, this is one of the great paradoxes of the Bible. If you're enslaved to anxiety, you wanna be free, become a slave to the kingdom. Freedom comes through slavery. It's just being a slave to the right thing, being a slave to God and his values and his kingdom. So serve and be free from your worries. That relates to everything that Jesus has said so far, and it also relates to what he closes with. He closes in verse 34, and that's the last verse, and it's the third command not to worry. People are often worried about the future, not just today. So he finishes by addressing this. He says in verse 34, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Look, tomorrow isn't here yet. It isn't real yet. But today is here. 
Today is real, so how foolish would it be to sacrifice what's real today by worrying about what's not even yet real tomorrow? Tomorrow's gonna have its own work for you to do, so don't bring it into today worrying about it. Just focus on the kingdom today, knowing that God's gonna provide for you today. He's gonna provide for you tomorrow too. Trust him, but I need you to listen very carefully to what I'm gonna say. God provides not always in the manner that we want but instead he provides in the manner that we need. Sometimes, and some of our songs this morning reflected this, sometimes the way that God provides for us is by taking away our comforts. Sometimes it's by allowing our enemies to amp up their attacks. Sometimes it's by taking away something very dear to us. In these moments, God helps break us from the illusions of this temporary world. God reminds us that this world is not our home, that this world is under the curse. It's overrun by sin and death. Why why would we want to inherit this? But sometimes we get so comfortable here that we do want to inherit this world. And and we want to control things so we can keep them exactly as we want them. And whenever we do that, we have taken our eyes off of God's promises and we're trying to trade away something that's infinite for something that is here today and gone tomorrow like the grass. And God, if you're a Christian, God loves you too much to let you make that trade. And so when you start making that trade, God then turns up the heat so that we can learn to trust him. In other words, the way he often gets us to grow in faith is by putting us through the very things we are worried about. And when Christians understand this and realize that's what's going on and that they're in a great company of saints who've been through it before them, then They're not going to think the sky is falling every time they don't get what they want. Instead, they'll be shaken from the illusions of the world. And once again, they will crave the reward that God has promised us in the world to come. That final tomorrow is promised to us. It is guaranteed. So don't worry about it. And regular tomorrow, that's just another day. So seek first the kingdom. God's going to take care of the rest. In light of this, the cure for anxiety is trusting in God's goodness and seeking the kingdom. You know, Paul, <coughs> I always like to cross-reference at least once. Paul essentially says the same thing in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, think about that. Don't worry about what? About anything. But in everything, pray, be thankful to him. And God's peace is gonna do something to you that is beyond understanding. And then seek first the kingdom. So when I opened, I mentioned that the, the Bible is a book that is really in many ways about our fears and anxieties. If you want to be rid of anxiety, then realize what it is. It is having little faith. It's not trusting that God is sovereign. It's assuming that since you're not in control, no one is. It's to think like an atheist. It's to think like a pagan. It's to think that God is not being good to you. It's to think that your life is your circumstances, when in reality, your life is more than your circumstances. So that's all that Jesus showed us. That's what's underneath it all. And listen, if that's how you think, we live based on how we think. So if you want to be rid of your anxiety, first start thinking rightly. Your life is not your circumstances, but your life is eternal. It will far outlast your circumstances. God is in control, even though you're not. And what does God tell us about himself? He is the good shepherd. Can anyone snatch his sheep out of his hand? 
No, he's the good shepherd, you're the sheep. He will take care of you day by day because he is sovereign. And yes, God is good to you. He is so good to you, so incredibly good to you that he is willing to mess up your plans if that's what has to happen to keep you on the right track. He loves you too much to allow you to be overly invested in this world. He plans to give you so much more and he wants you focused on that. Brothers and sisters, Believing this and trusting this are the keys to overcoming anxiety. This right thinking must lead to right living. In this case, right living is living in a way that seeks first the kingdom. So don't greedily hold on to your possessions, but be generous. Don't selfishly ignore the needs of the church, but involve yourself, starting today if you haven't been, in ministry. If you busy yourself on the things of the kingdom, you have little time to fuss and worry about the things of the dying world. So, this is the cure. Now, realistically, it takes time. It takes effort on your part. You're gonna have good days and you're gonna be getting better and better and then it's gonna feel like you take a couple steps backward and you're gonna be like, I've learned nothing, I'm a nervous wreck. And then you repent and you get back up and you keep going. The point is the direction and trajectory of your life and how you deal with anxiety will be more and more like Jesus the more and more you are walking with him and doing what Jesus says here. So trust in God that he will take care of you. Think of it this way. This is my final thing, and then, and then we'll close. He already took care of your biggest problem. The things we get anxious about aren't even our biggest problem. You know your biggest problem? You have sinned against an infinite and holy God, and he is just. And can a just judge just let a sinner walk free? No. When earthly judges do it, we say they're unjust. And here's the problem. You've sinned against one who's infinite, yet you're finite. So the only way that the only way you could be punished by him is with an infinite punishment. But how can a finite being pay an infinite punishment? He has to pay it forever. That's your biggest problem. A just holy God and you owe him a debt you could never pay. That's a lot more serious about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear. And yet, God solved it. How? By becoming a man, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, the word was made flesh and became a man. And because he's God, he is infinite, therefore he could pay the infinite price. But because he's also man, he could be the substitute in the place of man and die for us. And so in Christ, God solves the impossible riddle and removes our sin by dying for us on the cross, being buried and raising on the third day. And every Christian who is turn from their sins and believe on Jesus, we believe he saved us. We believe we're gonna have eternal life, but then we don't believe he's gonna feed us? What do you think was harder? Salvation or these other things? So let's use that lesser to greater reasoning again. If he took care of the hardest thing already and took care of that for you the moment you believed, then why can't you trust him to take care of all these other things? He will take care of them. And for any unbeliever here, just keeping this real simple, I just explained the gospel to you about God dying in our place on the cross, paying our debt, and those who believe on him get the credit of his righteousness. If you turn from your sins and surrender to Jesus and believe in him with all your heart, you too will be forgiven of all your sins, you'll be saved, and then you got your marching orders for seeking first the kingdom. You've, you've heard it this morning. So we're gonna pray. And as I'm praying to close out the sermon and to prepare for the Lord's Supper, you could be praying to God that I'm gonna turn away from my sins and I'm gonna believe on Jesus with all my heart. And then if you do, you'll be saved and then come and talk to me afterwards because there's more I wanna tell you. That being said, and I'll be standing up here, you know, for a little while. That being said, let's go to our Lord in prayer.